you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 12 through 24. If you're using one of our pew Bibles today, you'll find that on page 988. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. God, what a comfort to know that that is you, that you are our God, that you are our Father, our High Priest, our Redeemer, and our Lord. Thank you, God. I ask that you would be with my brother Toby right now as he brings your word. Father, we say it so many times, but please speak through him so we hear your voice today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a guest with us, um, you wouldn't know that uh, just this last Friday... We completed 40 days of praying through our church membership role, little by little, four or five uh, family units at a time. If you are visiting us from another church and just happen to be a guest today, uh, I would encourage you to do the same with the church membership role from, from your church. Uh, and actually, Gray Roaders, I would, uh, uh, I would encourage you to keep that little booklet, to keep praying through it, to keep Going through those names, it was not uncommon for me to hear, oh, I don't think I've ever met that person. And it doesn't take, uh, you don't have to be in a really, really huge church to be uh, unaware of other people, to, 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 to not know people. Uh, and so I would encourage you, if you found yourself saying that, uh, to remedy that, uh, to uh, take some steps uh, in getting to know others but this morning, we conclude our studies on prayer with a call from the Apostle Paul to keep going, to keep praying, to stay steady, to stay steady in the discipline of prayer, not simply as individuals, but as a church. And this call is tucked away in a series of commands here in 1 Thessalonians 5, this series of commands that runs from verse 15 to verse 18, and it is seen in verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Now, I wonder when you hear those three words, pray without ceasing, I wonder what comes to mind. I wonder what stirs in your heart as you hear God Himself command you and command me Pray without ceasing. Do you imagine that prayer without ceasing requires a kind of monk-like existence where you retreat from the real world uh, 
and you go away to some special place, and all you do is walk around with your eyes closed and pray. And uh, do you think it sounds boring to pray without ceasing? Like when others pray, maybe you bow your head to go along with it, but you'd really like it to be over so you could get along with whatever's next, with the real discussion, with the real work, with the rest of the service. Let's get on with it. You find it boring, this idea of praying without ceasing. Do you think it sounds hard to pray without ceasing? Maybe you find yourself like so many who would utter the phrase, I don't know what to say after about two minutes, but on a good day after about five minutes. But I still am not sure quite what to say, so how would you ever pray without ceasing? Maybe you think that prayer without ceasing is kind of uh, an upper-level Christianity type of activity. Like you reach a particular level, you're a fanatic or you're the super spiritual, uh, and those are the folks who can pray without ceasing, but me, I'm just an ordinary Christian. Does the command, pray without ceasing, stir guilt in your heart? Because you know you don't pray as you ought. Because ceasing describes your prayer life more than praying. Or maybe does it stir in your heart a desire to grow? Maybe there's something sweet and satisfying about the idea of praying without ceasing. And you'd like to know what that looks like because it sounds quite wonderful to commune with God in such a way. Well, whatever comes to mind, whatever stirs in your heart, wherever you are in your prayer life, I want us to think about what God says and listen to these words. I want us to meditate on it. I want to wrestle with it. Or if you're like me, I was planning to preach last week, so I've had multiple weeks, not necessarily for me to wrestle with these three words, but for these three words to wrestle with me. And I find they keep pinning me to the mat. And I find it's difficult to get up sometimes. Because we want to grow. We want to obey. And so let's let these things wrestle with us, shall we? And learn what I think is the point of these three words, which is that continual prayer is God's will for all Christians. Continual prayer is God's will for all Christians. Uh, can we pray even now before we continue? Our Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us through the teaching of Your Word, by the power of Your Spirit, for the glory of Your Son. Amen. The first thing I want to consider with you is the meaning of this command. The meaning of this command. Now, Paul's writing to a church that, is, that was born under persecution in Acts chapter 17... And that continues to live under persecution. He points to this a few different times. I just want to point them out quickly. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, You received the word in much affliction. It wasn't a nice tent revival where everybody was glad that you came. The whole city was outside screaming at you to not listen to this troublemaker, Paul. And yet, you received this word, Paul says in chapter 1, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. It has come through the power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he goes on, You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered. In chapter 3, he speaks of the fact that he had sent Timothy to check on them because he wanted to know how they were. You see, Paul had to leave in a great hurry from Thessalonica. Uh, they came to the place, a man named Jason was showing hospitality to him, 
And the unbelieving Jews came in great haste to attack the house, uh, but Paul's friends snuck him out of the city in time. Uh, they arrested Jason. He was let out on bail. But then they heard that, that Paul had gone to Berea, which is in fact two days' travel away from Thessalonica. And these unbelievers are so committed to getting Paul, they go to Berea after him. And they go to Berea after him, and his friends once again get him out. But he's very concerned about the atmosphere back in Thessalonica. He wants the gospel to take root. He wants the church to be healthy. So he sends back Timothy. And in chapter 3 we read, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. You see, Paul understands the parable of the soils quite well. Do you remember the parable of the soils? Some of the seed falls upon the rocky soil, and this is the seed that the, the enemy takes. But there is seed that goes in and is received with great joy, but when the afflictions come, when persecutions happen, it is choked out, it dies away, and it doesn't bear fruit. And Paul is very concerned that the church at Thessalonica not be like that, because that's not real salvation. He wants them to be rooted firmly planted in the gospel, which is why he sent Timothy back. It's good, friends, to be concerned for the salvation of others. It's good to inquire about others. Paul did not just go on with his agenda saying, I'm a missionary and I go on to other places. Paul was always concerned about the health of the churches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, the daily concern and anxiety of the churches presses on him. I wonder if as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the health of the church presses in on you with great concern. I wonder if you're concerned about the health of churches other than this one. Because, dear friends, the city of Indianapolis does not need one healthy church. The city of Indianapolis needs dozens and dozens and dozens of healthy churches. And if we are not kingdom-minded, both in our thinking and in our conversation and in our praying, then we are not following the pattern of the Apostle Paul or, quite frankly, the pattern of the Lord Jesus Himself who is concerned to build His church. Don't you want Indianapolis filled with churches and the gates of hell can't stand against them? Well, you better be praying for it. You better be wanting it. When you run into another Christian from another congregation, you better encourage them. You better not be one of these folks who say, well, that's nice that you go to that church, but you should really come to our church. You should be one who wants every gospel-preaching church to succeed. Every time another news story breaks, which did just this week, about another pastor taken under by the work of the enemy, it ought to stab us right in the heart. It ought to drive us back to the Bible to make sure that we are guarded and protected and drive us back to our knees, not only for ourselves and for our own congregation, but for those left in the wake of such difficulty. This church is suffering quite a bit, so it makes sense that Paul would tell them that they need to pray, wouldn't it? We all have this instinct. We know when our backs are against the wall, when difficult times come, we ought to pray. I mean, the reality is, is that even unbelievers have some kind of sense of this. No matter how much my friend debates me in the coffee shop, I've never had one refuse my prayers in the hospital room. But Paul actually says more than pray. He says pray without ceasing. If we peel back the English here and we look at the Greek, we'll see that there's a pattern that runs from chapter 15 all the way to chapter, uh, to, sorry, verse 15 to verse 18. More literally, it would le read this way, okay? See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Ready? Always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Always rejoice. Always pray. In all things give thanks. That's how it reads in the Greek. 
The commands don't take the front, the front row. The consistency takes the front row. Always do good. Always rejoice. Always pray. Always give thanks. Can you feel that text wrestling with you even as you, you just say always over and over again? Because aren't there certain circumstances where you know, oh, this is a good time to give thanks, isn't it? Oh, this is a great time to rejoice. Oh, now let us pray. Ah, let me do good today. Feel good today. Paul doesn't say any, of the, any such thing. He says always, 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 always. In other words, don't let this, the nature of your circumstances, Thessalonians, determine whether you will do good, whether you will rejoice, whether you will give thanks, whether you will pray. Do it always. But what does Paul mean here by always pray? Well, there is a right way and a wrong way to understand this. The wrong way would actually be it's not unending prayer, not precisely. It doesn't mean we never have conversations with anyone but God. It doesn't mean we don't speak to our spouses. It doesn't mean we put off talking to the kids by saying, no, Dad needs to, Dad's going to pray tonight. I'm not going to actually parent you. I'm going to pray. This is not what it means. That we don't preach, we don't share the gospel, we don't discuss ideas, we don't make plans, we only make utterances to God. That's not what he means by pray without ceasing. It'd also be wrong to think that he means make your prayers must be long in order to be effective. That never stop short in prayer when you can keep praying. In fact, Jesus rebuked this, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 6, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't think that if you can just pray a long time, somehow you've pinned God to the mat. Somehow the will, our finite, frail human will, has finally pinned God to where He must do what I want Him to do, because listen to how long I've prayed. No, it's not unending prayer. What it is, is relentless prayer. That's the idea. It is the spirit of prayer that simply will not give up. That each varying circumstance of life stirs the soul to pray. That it is ongoing that as individuals or as a church that we will not dry up or shrivel up for lack of prayer. Jesus taught His followers to do this, didn't He? In Matthew 7, when he says, ask, seek, knock, if you've ever heard that taught, somebody should have said, this is what he means, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. There's a tambourine under here. I can't actually make that jingling sound just with my knuckles. There's actually a tambourine in there. Just in case things dull down a bit, I can pull it out. And we'll just go at it with that. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Stay after it. Don't you dare give up. And then he tells a parable to, tell, to say the same in Luke chapter 18. He tell, the, the, Luke introduces the parable by telling us Jesus told a parable to the effect that his disciples would pray and not give up. And so he tells the parable of the, the persistent widow who goes to an unjust judge who doesn't fear God, who doesn't care about people. But, it, but because she is persistent, she gets it. And, 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 and the argument is, how much more will God answer your persistent prayers? And interestingly enough, that parable ends with this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
On first reading, it seems completely out of place because the whole thing is about praying persistently. And then all of a sudden, this question about faith. What do you mean? Do you mean, will he find believers? No, what he means is, will he find people persistently praying? Because faith, in part, is persistence in prayer. I read a story of George Mueller just, I think, last night. He had four friends that he was praying for, for their conversion. And after four or five years, the first two came to faith. And after 25 years, the third came to faith. And after 50 years, the fourth friend came to faith. Have you given up? Have you tossed in the towel on praying? Have you stopped seeking? Have you stopped asking? Have you stopped knocking? Jesus would tell us that's not faith. That's thinking of prayer as our lucky rabbit's foot. It's not. Faith keeps going to the right person and trusting them to give the right answer. That's what it is. Faith keeps going to Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, this is what, this is what I would desire. This is what I want. More than anything to honor you. More than anything to glorify you. Would you do this? Would you do that? Would you save him? Would you save her? Would you change this? And leave at his feet over and over and over and over and over and over again. Not because piling up our prayers gives us leverage, but because it builds faith. Why is this important, Paul? Why is this meaning of this phrase so important? Because, quite frankly, we may launch into hard times with great zeal, can't we? Like the first day, I got this. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna chase this down and glorify God and grow and all this stuff. It's gonna be awesome, and God's gonna work. But to tell you the truth. As difficulty wears on in life, it tends to wear us down in spirit. And that's why we must be encouraged to consistency. And that's why we must be encouraged to pray without ceasing. Well, what's that look like? Before we go on, just let me give you a few examples of what this might look like. If it's not this unending utterance, if it's resolve to pray, if it's relentless prayer, what might it look like? Well, it might look like, in part, setting times for prayer and determining, with God's help, to never not keep those appointments. Never let them change. As far as it depends on you, I'm keeping that time. It also looks like spontaneous prayers as needs arise in our own heart or as we hear a news story. When you hear a siren whip by, my bride is wonderful at this. We'll be on the road, we'll pull over because a siren is going by and she'll be very quick to tell the kids that means something's gone wrong and we should pray for them. What about using your agenda as a way to pray in preparation for your day? Maybe you know that there are particularly particular meetings at work that could be quite contentious. Maybe there is a lunch with a friend for whom you've been praying. Maybe there's one-on-one -on -one time with one child or another that you know is coming. How is it that, that you see, as far as you know, what your day looks like? How can you pray for that? Another way is to keep the ACTS acronym handy to pray through your day. All right? You know, well, let me just remind you of this. Many of you will know it. Let's put up this uh, picture. ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. This is a helpful tool just to pray through your day. You get done 
with your morning and you're on your way to work, what, how ought you to pray about the morning that led up to that? You finished that meeting at work. Who were you in that meeting? How ought you to pray for that? Should you be thanking God for His grace to help you stay calm in the midst of a contentious situation? Should you be confessing your sin, not only to Him, but maybe to somebody else that you spoke harshly to in that meeting? Now that is something that takes training. It's, it's like eating right. You have to kind of make, you have to have a real firm plan, right? And you have to do it intentionally all the time. So here's a way to start. If you want to start using that ACTS acronym, start at the end of your day. And think back through your day. How ought I to pray in response to each thing that happened today? You won't remember everything that happened in that day. Should I be praising God for this or that? Should I be confessing my sin? Should I be thankful for some provision that's been given? Should I be making intercession for a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a situation, whatever it is? Something national, something local, something international? And then just keep praying for the same things until God answers. But pray with humility. Not thinking you're piling up leverage, but knowing that God is faithful to answer. Just some ways that you could begin this. That's so the meaning, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Secondly, the theology behind the command the theology behind the command. I want us to step back from these three words for just a moment and think about them because they are, it's not just this bare command. God is not just saying, well, let's see, what are some religious duties we could put on people? No, this command is born out of realities that will help us as we think about praying without ceasing. First of all, I'm just going to mention three. You may mention more. Maybe you can talk about it over lunch and come up with six or seven more. That would be great. I'm just going to mention three. One theological truth behind the command to pray without ceasing is the character of God. If you'd like to do a study in this, just go to Isaiah 40 and begin to read. Because everything I'm about to say comes straight out of there. Not word for word, but my summation. That both He is great... And He is good. He is great, meaning He's infinitely powerful and wise. He's not defined or controlled by human beings or by human history. He controls the universe. He holds it together. He controls human history. And He never grows tired or weary. And He loves to give strength. He's good. He's great, meaning He's infinitely powerful. I mean, He is sovereign. He is absolutely in control of every square inch of His universe at every millisecond of human history. And He is good. He carries us, Isaiah 40 says. He gently leads us. He cares about our problems. He knows our needs. He gives help to those who ask. He renews our strength. This is the God to whom we go. He is great and He is good. But not only the character of God, the nature of mankind ought to fuel praying without ceasing. Why? Because first of all, we are creatures. We are frail and finite. We are dependent on God for our breath, for our life, for our very being, for wisdom. We cannot exist for a moment apart from Him. Not only are we creatures, we are weak at that. Do not walk around and read the magazine covers that tell you how strong you are. That tell you how great you are. Drove by a church this week, or maybe last week. I think the sign blew over in God's good providence. But a sign outside introducing their sermon series titled, You Matter. I'm not going to say you don't matter. You are made in the image of God, but I'm not sure what they mean by that. I know what most of the culture means, and I know what a lot of the Christian world means when they start to do that. They pick up the self-help uh, book, and they just add a couple of verses, and they point it at you and say, look how great you are. 
Look how great you are. Now, if you matter was aimed at the Lord, I'm all for it. Lord, you matter. And only because the Lord matters does anything else matter. We are weak. We grow faint, Isaiah 40 says. We grow weary. We fall exhausted. We are like the grass that fades. Some of us can feel the fading more than others. And some weeks we feel the fading more than others, don't we? But we are weak. We are creatures. And we've been given access to a great and good God. One more. The nature of the Christian life. Why pray without ceasing? Well, the nature of the Christian life speaks to this because when a person becomes a Christian, he's, he or she is not adding a little religion to their life. The Bible teaches us that becoming a Christian is a radical transformation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have a new life, a new heart. In fact, the Bible speaks in terms of a transfer of ownership. That we were once slaves of sin and children of the devil, and by God's grace through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and are now slaves to righteousness and children of God. So that Romans 6 says, You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. I want you to think in terms of technology. For some of you, that will mean smoke out your ears. But listen... The Christian life is not a new program on your computer. The Christian life is not a new app on your phone. The Christian life is a whole new operating system out of which we live life, from which we deal with all the issues of life. It is not an addition. It is a transformation. And if Christianity, if faith in Jesus is only an addition to your life, if going to church is only an addition to your life, if praying is only an addition to your life, if walking with Christ is only an addition to your life, this is not the Christianity that the Bible speaks of. You see, friend, if you're not a Christian, I hope you'll hear that. The Bible teaches that you are a slave to sin. You are probably not as bad as you could be. And for that, we should all be thankful that I'm not as bad as I could be. And you're not as bad as you could be. But sin ruins us and enslaves us. And the chains of sin, friend, will ultimately drag you to hell itself. And Jesus offers freedom from that sin. The old life gone. A new life given. Not a second chance, not a blank slate to write a new story. You are not get, God is not in the business of giving second chances. God gives us Jesus' chance. God doesn't give me a second chance to do better. God says, Jesus did it all, all to Him I owe. He forgives my sin and His righteousness is credited to me through faith. If you play golf, it's a difference between a mulligan and a, and a scramble. In a mulligan, you just get a second chance to take that shot. And I've always found I'm just as bad on the second swing as I was on the first swing. But a scramble isn't that way. A scramble is with you're playing with someone else. And you hit a shot and they hit a shot. And the best shot, you take it. And dear friend, the best shot before God is Jesus Christ every time. And through faith, we get His shot and not ours. That's why we have victory in Jesus. Through His death and resurrection, Jesus offers forgiveness for sin, a right relationship with God, hope in this life, and heaven in the life to come. Don't you want that? Don't you want it? Don't leave this place just wanting it. 
Talk to any member of this church. We would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus, to turn from your sin, and to trust in Him. Don't walk out just wishing you had a second chance when you could be given something far better. Eternal life. So the character of God and the nature of mankind and the nature of the Christian life all add up to inform this command to pray without ceasing. So think about it. When I believe in and love a God who is both great and good, and when I'm convinced that I'm nothing more than a weak creature, I pray. But when I understand that as a Christian, I live in light of these truths all day, every day, not just on Sundays, not just in my quiet time, not just at a prayer meeting, not just during a quiet, not just uh, during uh, some other you know, growth group, not just during my growth group on Wednesday, when I'm convinced that my whole existence is that of a weak creature saved and cared for by a great and good God, then I will be convinced that prayer without ceasing is not merely a command to obey. It is a lifeline for my soul. All day. Every day. Relentless prayer. That's the theology behind the command. Third, the motivation for the command. Paul gets rather explicit. Paul may come and tell me I didn't need to do all of that. I could just look in the next phrase and I would find everything I'd ever need to know about motivation. So let me read it for you. Go back to verse 15. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Always rejoice. Always pray. In all things give circumstance give all circumstances give thanks. Why, Paul? Why should we do these things? Why not just do it when it's convenient? Why not just do it when the circumstances seem to fit? I'm glad you asked, said Paul. For it is the will of God. The will of God is not just that we do good, just that we rejoice, just that we pray, just that we give thanks, but that we always do them. Do you want to know what God wants from you in your life? Christian, do you want to know what God wants from you? There it is. Every young person going off into the workforce or off to college or off to learn a trade or off to anything who wants to know what God's will is for their life, this is one of the places in the Bible where you can just go right to it and answer it. Always do good. Always rejoice. Always pray. Always give thanks. Never give up, never throw in the towel, stay steady. Isn't it interesting? All we, look, here's what bugs me, all right? Not bugs me, but it gets me thinking. In truth, isn't it enough for God to just say, pray without ceasing? I mean, we don't go to all the other commands and say, well, now, this one doesn't say it's God's will. So I guess I don't have to do that one. Why does Paul do that here? Because this isn't the only place he does it in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And then here, always do good, always rejoice, always pray, always give thanks. This is the will of God. Why, Paul? Why add this business about the will of God? Well, Paul doesn't actually specifically tell us, but I, I think if we think about it, we might be able to come to a reasonable conclusion here. That when we're in the midst of suffering, 
Whether because of circumstances we've created or suffering at the hands of others, or we can't find any human connection, we just know that God has somehow providentially ordained this season. In those times when life is at its hardest, do you know what often takes center stage? Relief. Get me out of this. Lift the burden. Give me a doorway of escape from this wretched circumstance. And it is not wrong to pray for relief. The Apostle Paul did it in 2 Corinthians 12. But relief for myself cannot take center stage when I am suffering. So Paul takes the Thessalonians and us by the shoulders and he lifts our chin off of our chest and he looks us right in the eye and he says, you're suffering. And when you're suffering, you can't forget who you belong to and what his call is on your life. This is God's will, your sanctification. This is God's will. Always do good. Always rejoice. Always pray. Always give thanks. In fact, I think a strong argument could be made that, the, that, the, that both prayer here is both a root and a fruit of that. That the, the, the root of always doing good, of always rejoicing, of always giving thanks, of always pursuing our sanctification in the midst of suffering is... Praying without ceasing. It is an answer to that prayer that God comes and God answers and God gives power and God gives strength and God gives help and God gives His Spirit and God gives Himself. How easy it is to lose sight of God's will when we are suffering, isn't it? Isn't it easy to lose sight of this? So how sweet and how kind and how gracious for God to make it clear through the Apostle Paul. Are you suffering? You must pray without ceasing. You must. It's not a suggestion. It's not a tip. It's not just a bit of counsel. It's a command. Because it's the only thing that will sustain your soul all the time is to all the time pray. You must follow in the footsteps of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who said it was His food, His very sustenance to do the will of the Father, who refused to let the greatest suffering known in the universe deter Him from doing the will of God. So He prayed, not my will but yours be done. And then he got up off his knees and he laid down on a cross. And he suffered the wrath that we deserve to accomplish the Father's will of salvation. If we don't do God's will here, then we will certainly do what verse 19 warns us not to do, which is quench the Spirit. You know what the Spirit working in our lives and in our congregation looks like? You want to know? Write it down. Four things. You ready? We're always doing good to one another. We're always rejoicing. We're always praying. We're always giving thanks. Oh, and a fifth one. We're always pursuing our own spiritual growth, our sanctification. This is what the Spirit does. Don't fight against the purposes of God in your life. Lean into them. But how are we supposed to do this? It's hard. It seems quite impossible, actually. Well, that brings us to our last stop, which is the power to obey the command. The power to obey the command. Now, of course, from the rest of the New Testament, we know that the Spirit enables all of this. That's why avoiding these commands is an act of quenching the Spirit. But there's one little phrase in verse 18 that encourages us and reminds us that what is impossible 
actually isn't impossible. That phrase in verse 18 is this. In Christ Jesus. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In Christ Jesus is a shorthand that Paul often uses to talk about our union with God through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, we were all born in Adam, in sin, unable to please God or know God fully. But by God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, we have been relocated from being in Adam to being in Christ. And being in Christ, we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ who teaches us and enables our obedience even in the, to the hardest commands of the Bible. But not only that, to be in Christ is to be awakened to the ultimate unchanging reality and hope that no matter what circumstances are in life, no matter the setbacks, no matter the pain, no matter the unexpected changes, nothing changes my relationship with God. Being in Christ brings that assurance. Being in Christ brings the power. Being in Christ brings the assurance. And if nothing changes in relationship to God, then I am encouraged and strengthened to always do His will. Because nothing changes. The moment that God changes, we can start to think about whether we will, should change our pattern of obedience. But God will never change. His love for us, there's nothing, neither, neither death nor life, nor angel nor demon, nor anything present, nor anything to come, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, pray without ceasing. What is determining the perseverance of your prayer life? Is it the reality of being in Christ? Is it who He is? Or is it something else? And do you know what kind of Christian is in Christ? This is important. We can't leave it there. Do you know what kind of Christian is actually in Christ who have the Spirit dwelling in them? Do you know which Christians can, in fact, pray without ceasing? It's not just the elite Christians. It's not just the long-time Christians. It's not just the Christian missionaries or the Christian pastors or the Christian deacons or your Christian grandmother. Every single Christian is in Christ. And if you are in Christ, this is the will of God for you. And His Spirit empowers you to do it. So, dear friend, if you are in Christ, this is, I've said this to more people than I can remember. If you're a Christian, there is no can't when it comes to obeying the Bible. When it comes to prayer without ceasing, you may need to grow. You may need to grow quite a bit before you even really believe you're beginning to obey, but that's all right. That's the right trajectory to be on, is to be growing. You may need to repent of your lack of concern to grow in prayer. You need, may need to ask a more mature believer to pray with you just to... One of the wonderful ways to actually learn how to pray is to pray with someone who's been praying a really, really long time and has grown in prayer. You may not know how to pray in each situation, but Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit helps us even there and prays on our behalf. But for the Christian, there is no can't when it comes to prayer without seeing, ceasing. There is only won't. And if we won't, then we will, in fact, quench the Spirit. Not just in our own lives, not just in our family. In this congregation... Continual prayer is God's will for all Christians. John Bunyan wrote, so helpful to think, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Gray Road we must be a family of faith that prays without ceasing. Relentless. 
relentlessly going to the throne room of grace, taking advantage of the access that Jesus Christ has bought for us in His blood. Knowing that we will find mercy and grace for our time of need when we go there. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful that You are a speaking God. We are thankful that You speak with clarity and power in Your Word to us. We ask even now that You would grant us grace that wherever we are, wherever our prayer lives may be, however thriving or however stagnant or however absent they may have been till now, grow us in this grace. Remind us of our creatureliness, our weakness, our need for You, our great and good God, not just at specific times, but all the time. Lord, each of us who are in Christ can do this. We believe that. We believe that Your Spirit can produce this fruit of obedience in our lives. And so we pray that we will work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as You work in us to will and to do Your good purpose. Help us to be a church that when it comes to prayer, does your will. We need you, Father. May that truth of word be the truth of our experience day by day, and may it result in our prayer without ceasing. We ask for the sake of Jesus and in His name. Amen.